Let's go. Welcome to another episode of the Uru Labs podcast from Bengaluru. Ever complain how bad our cities are, how bad your commute is? You'll get to hear from people who are working to solve these problems in their own way. This is your weekly soapbox for urban sustainability. So do not forget to like, subscribe and share these videos. I am Satya Sankaran with Nirav Kodolikar. And today on the show, we'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Barter. He's an adjunct professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, where he teaches infrastructure policy, urban policy and transport policy. Since about 1994, he's been focusing on urban transport policy and on the parking policy since 2009. And I remember reaching out to him in 2010. And so for the past 14 years, he's been doing a lot of work around parking. He talks about parking to many people across the globe on his podcast uh, and blog. Uh, it's called Reinventing Parking. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Paul. Thank you, Satya. And hello, Niraf. And hello, listeners and viewers. One of the first things I want to start with is, why why is parking really a problem? Or what, what is wrong with parking uh, that we are doing now? What, what are we doing wrong with parking? Maybe that's a better way of asking that. Yeah. So, so I guess one thing... People in India sometimes feel as though the the huge problems that you see in in your cities are somehow unique and uh, new, uh, but uh, parking has been emerging as a problem in city after city all over the world for about a hundred years now, and uh, we can very clearly see more or less the same story happens over and over and over again. And uh, that story is that before, I'll give you a very, very brief version of the story, but then we'll perhaps dive into more detailed versions of that story as we go along. But the, the very, very short version of it is, you know, when if you think back maybe 20 or 30 years in Indian cities, uh, car ownership and even two-wheeler ownership were quite low. Uh, and so it, it wasn't really a problem if the, the fairly few motorists would park their car or their motorcycle uh, in the street, more or less anywhere, or in a compound at their destination, it might have been a squeeze, but it, the numbers of vehicles were small, and so it wasn't a huge problem. And so, yeah, in, in place after place all over the world, the first few vehicles over the first sort of 10 years as people start to get these vehicles – People get used to the idea that they, they can park anywhere for free and it's not highly regulated and um, it's not a big problem. Uh, but fairly quickly, as economic success comes along, and we've seen that in India, uh, more and more motorcycles, more and more cars, and parking very quickly faces a lot of competition. Motorists face competition from each other for those parking spaces and they start to get frustrated. They also start to cause problems for others. The parking gets in the way of people on foot, people on bicycles, people on in cars and motorcycles trying to move and uh, buses get clogged up and impeded by, by the parking. And the problem is the mindset um, that emerges in those early days doesn't go away. <laughs> and so each new generation of motorists assumes uh, that the the natural order of things 
is that I should be able to park wherever I please, more or less, and uh, it should not be expensive. In fact, it probably should be free if I can possibly uh, organize that. So uh, the first things that motorists demand from governments is that uh, there's not enough parking. I'm facing competition from my fellow motorists and uh, I need more parking, right? And uh, whatever you do, don't make it expensive. Just, just give me more of it. And so the initial impulse of governments is to react to that rather loud um, set of um, yelling and screaming from the motorists as they start to perceive this problem. It, it, it also doesn't help that in the early days of motorization in any city, who are these motorists? They tend to be the richest, best educated, most influential people. And so those loud voices in the early days shape the mindsets, shape the early policies and uh, practices towards parking. And all of those practices and policies are f sort of buying into a sense of um, privilege and uh, a sense of, um, you know, I, I deserve cheap convenient parking. And so governments are very reluctant, you know, city governments, state governments are very reluctant to do the obvious thing, which would be to ration the parking through various methods. But uh, the most effective is uh, using fees, on-street parking fees, uh, enforcement to make sure people don't park in haphazard ways that are a nuisance. But in the, again, in the early days when most of these motorists are influential people, privileged people, um, it, it's, it's, it doesn't see, it's not easy to, to say, okay, you should be paying, we should ration your, and, and in the very early days, uh, some of these motorists in fact have drivers. And so the, 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 the you know, using fees may not be very effective. Even they'll just uh, circle around or have the driver park illegally temporarily. And if anyone comes along, they just move a little bit and, it's hard. It's quite hard in the early days to to achieve anything that way, and so the easy thing seems to be, let's build more parking. So cities in the city centres will often try to find some land and uh, build some parking. Maybe they have some city-owned land. There's also a mindset that city-owned land is free land somehow, which is not true. Land always has an opportunity cost, and uh, land is very very precious in city centres, busy areas somehow this idea of the free land so we can use that for parking uh, and the idea that um, building owners and builders people who build buildings developers should be required to provide parking on site within the compound it somehow seems like that that somehow seems like a very seductive policy so country after country city after city adopts that policy of requiring plentiful parking within each compound and it's a seductive idea. It seems obvious if the parking in the streets is chaotic, we want to reduce that. We, we, try, we hope that we can um, get people to park off street instead of on the street. So it seems obvious that, well, where are those people going? They're going to buildings. They're going to compounds. Make the compounds have the parking rather than the streets. It, it seems like a normal and natural idea. So this sense of privilege that it's somebody else's responsibility to provide me with parking. The motorists have that belief. And unfortunately, many authorities around the world, especially in the early days of this story, 
buy into that belief and think, oh, well, okay, yes, actually, it is our responsibility to make sure there's parking. Either we will build some or we will make developers and building owners provide some. And that that's where things go wrong <laughs> because uh, making off-street parking does not magically suck the cars and the motorcycles off the streets. So what typically happens is you end up with a situation where the busy areas have some off-street parking uh, in garages that cities have built or in uh, garages that or, or compounds, parking within compounds. But typically you have to pay for that parking. If you park, decide to pay, go, go into that parking, you have to pay. Whereas the on-street very often is still free of charge or it's very, very inefficiently priced. Maybe you have some kind of pricing, but it might be attendance taking a bit of cash, but you know it, it, that pricing is so inefficient and the price is much lower than the off-street parking. And so you still have chaos in the streets and you still have uh, half-empty parking off the, off the street. So it turns out that means that the off-street parking is not making money because even though it's trying to charge money, that's it's underused and the land and the building of that parking turns out to be incredibly expensive, especially in busy parts of cities where land and building is expensive. And so um, developers are reluctant to, to provide much parking. They have to be forced. Sometimes they, they cheat. So we see, you know, they, they, they pretend to build the parking, but then they quietly have shops where the parking should be. But that, that's rational when they can't make much money from the parking. What's, got, what's, what's the root cause of this problem? Well, mm. there's various root causes, but the one key mistake was to fail to manage that on-street parking vigorously. Mm. But it's an understandable mistake. We can see why cities are reluctant to do that. And in the past, it was quite difficult to do that. But it turns out that it's getting easier and easier. The technology has improved, and we have more and more examples of places that have solved this problem in the past. So there's really no excuse anymore. So <laughs> although yeah. we, we see this same story happening in Indian cities, but actually Indian cities are lucky that they've got lots of examples to look at now to, to, to do the right thing. And that the number one right thing is to manage the on-street parking. And we can talk more about what that entails, perhaps. The question that I want to ask is, why do we have to manage this on-street parking? What is the goal of managing parking? Why can't it be... I heard you say one of these things, it's not a public good. I understand because I know what a public good really means. It is not. It's misunderstood. When you said it should be free, I think they are in their mind associating it with, oh, it's a public good because it cont contributes to me going around and as my right to use my motor vehicle, uh, of course, in many other countries, it's just a car and it's here, it's a two-wheeler as well. There are also <clears throat> other parking requirements like cargo vehicles, the public buses. The uh, So if you talk about private passenger vehicle parking, why do we have to manage parking, especially on street parking? What is the goal of that? Why are we trying to even do this thing? Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's various ways to answer that. I could answer it in perhaps... Um... Very simple terms. I could also use kind of economists, wonkish public policy talk, like public goods, common property resources. And, and so may, maybe I'll mention that yeah. briefly in a minute. But yeah. the simple reason is to make sure that motorists have an incentive to look for off-street parking and to be willing to pay for off-street parking. If the on-street parking is not well managed, then the motorists have 
almost no incentive to even look for off-street parking, let alone to pay for off-street parking, let alone to pay the full cost of the off-street parking or this full opportunity cost. So that's perhaps the very, very simple reason. But a secondary reason is on the other side of the coin. Where is the parking off-street coming from? Um, you know, somebody has to invest mm-hmm. to make sure there's off-street parking. So the early days or the sort of the simplistic solution was to, for the cities to build it and subsidize it. It was loss-making, but they, were, they thought they had to do that or to force developers to do that. But increasingly, so we'll talk more about the parking reform movement and the parking reform movement is informed by the experience of several places around the world, as well as lots of research. And the idea is that if motorists have the right incentive to look for off-street parking and to pay for it, then developers and builders and the owners of buildings, the real estate industry essentially, will have also the right incentive to meet that demand, right? If they see a demand from motorists for parking that motorists are willing to pay for, then the real estate industry can respond to that, right? After all, they are experts at meeting demand for real estate. They can meet demand for hotel rooms, for residences. There are some market failures, so it's not always perfect. And in parking, there are some problems. And so government does need to kind of keep a close eye on things to make sure things don't go wrong. But broadly speaking, the experience in certain places, such as downtowns, city centers all over the world, is one sort of arena where we see this working reasonably well in many places. But also Japanese cities are an example where this kind of this idea that we don't have to force so much parking to be built. It, developers and the real estate industry and commercial interests will tend to provide parking and to manage it in, in the right kinds of ways. I'll, I'll, I'll spell out a few more details about Japan later, perhaps, because it's an interesting story. You know, if you ask a parking reformer for their list of, say, four or five things to reform, Japan does not do exactly that list. But the, the things they do do are close enough that we can point to Japan as being a good model, an interesting model, and a, a reassuring model. It reassures us that when we claim that governments don't need to worry so much about the off-street parking, cities don't need to worry so much that there'll be a shortage of off-street parking even if they don't build lots of parking themselves and even if they don't mandate through the parking norms that buildings build parking, have parking on site, even if governments don't do that, cities don't do that, state governments don't do that, we can be fairly confident that there will be enough off-street parking at about the right prices if, if the on-street parking is really managed well. So Japan actually is a strange variation on that. You asked, why do we have to manage the on-street parking? So one choice is to manage the on-street parking using fees, good enforcement, good design. And in most parts of the world where most, um, in most parts of the world, that's how it's done. But there's a small number of places and Japanese cities are, are a prominent example where there's another option was taken. And that was to actually mostly ban on street parking completely. So nice. if if you visit a big Japanese city or even a small Japanese city, 
and you walk along the streets on the big main roads you might see no parking or you might see a little bit of parking uh, in marked spaces with parking meters but much much less than you would see in most other parts of the world and on the minor streets the the japanese streets that are not main roads are typically very narrow and uh, so historically that was the norm and even in the sort of through the last few decades of um, you know the modern world they they didn't they didn't change that they've kept that tradition of having very very narrow residential streets very very narrow shopping streets so th there's there's really almost no room for parking you will you will see some parking some illegal parking people will stop for half an hour or 10 minutes to run some errands or something but if they if they stay for much longer than that they're risking getting towed away and one other crucial thing in japan is that overnight parking in the streets is is banned completely banned so even in the legal parking spaces you're not allowed to park there overnight so there's there's um tow trucks go around in the middle of the night in japanese cities looking for cars parked in the streets at say 3 a.m 4 a.m and um that they, they will be towed and uh, you pay a fine. And so they they brought that policy in, in that early stage. So as you remember, I said that cities go through these stages, this early stage of cars being parked in the street and causing a nuisance. So that, that happened in Japan too. In the 1950s, it started to happen. And fairly quickly, because of their narrow streets, this became a bigger problem than it was for most other countries <laughs> much faster and so they had to sort of think what are we going to do faster than most other countries and right. to some extent they followed the same story as everyone else they tried to build off-street parking the city government started to build off-street parking they started to try to force uh, developers and um, you know owners of off-street off-street space in the compounds to have parking in the compounds and so just like everywhere else they they established parking norms but they did one or two other things that were a little special which changed their scenario and uh it meant that japan developed in quite a different way its parking story was was quite different from that time onwards from the 1960s onwards so one of those things was they they many many places actually as, as i've looked into parking i've been surprised that actually it's quite common for one of the early responses to the problems of parking in residential areas in the busier parts of cities was to ban on street parking overnight mm. okay so but in most countries and most cities where they did that they gave up after a little while as car ownership went up and people were saying, well, what choice do I have? I have to park somewhere. I have to park in the street. So, you know, you don't be so, don't be so cruel to me, uh, you know? And so the governments eventually gave up on that. In Japan, they stuck to that. They persisted with this overnight parking ban. And uh, this meant that even in residential areas, lots of the houses didn't have off, off street parking on-site parking with their compounds and new buildings often um, there were parking mandates but the second interesting thing Japanese cities did was the parking mandates were quite low and they were pragmatic I don't know the exact story probably the real estate developer lobby was quite strong and they said 
Um, part of it might be the fact that plots of land, urban plots of land in Japan tend to be very small. And so squeezing parking into those plots of land is very, very difficult. It's only feasible for the larger plots of land. And so Japanese law exempted small buildings from the parking norms. So it's only they only kick in for medium-sized buildings, and even then they're, they're quite low and they phase in. So it's only when you have a really quite large building of about 6,000 square meters of floor space that the full parking, meter, parking requirements, parking mandates or parking norms apply to Japanese buildings, only big ones, 6,000 square meters and, and above. So what this meant is that Actually, lots and lots of small developments and medium-sized apartment buildings weren't required to have very much parking. They didn't have enough parking for their residents, for their tenants, for their visitors. And so at the same time, there's almost no on-street parking. So very, very quickly, there's demand for off-street parking, both at night and in the daytime, in almost every neighborhood in Japan. But the parking norms are not doing much to create that demand. The city governments very quickly realized they tried to build off-street parking, but it's very expensive. You can't do much. You, 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 you try hard, but car ownership is going like this, and the amount of parking that you're providing is going up, but much, much, much more slowly. And this is a very common story. Try as they might, cities just can't build enough parking. So there was a market demand for off-street parking, and gradually the private sector started to charge for their off-street parking Buildings that had some off-street parking would very often open it to the public and say, okay, you can come in, but you have to pay. Um, people who owned small plots of land, if they didn't, you know, if they, if they weren't ready to build on it, they would let it be parking temporarily. Sometimes it lasts for a long time. But um, so if you go to Japan, there's priced parking, off-street parking, almost everywhere, typically in very small facilities. And um, some, some of them are towers with automated parking. But not much of that parking is government built or government owned and there's very little on-street parking so we can be perhaps reassured that um, parking can take care of itself if we manage the on-street parking so so one option is to manage it another option is to ban it <laughs> now in most cities it's too late to ban it right we've already started to allow it and we've started to sort of like mark it out and whatnot so if we suddenly change our policy now and ban the on-street parking, that would seem a little bit draconian. It would seem too harsh. But um, in Japan, they they did ban it. <laughs> and uh, so banning has a very similar effect to managing it well, remember, because that sends the incentives. In, in Japan, motorists have no choice but to look for off-street parking. In other cities where on-street parking is really well managed, they have an incentive they have a choice. They can park in the well-managed on-street parking and pay and follow the rules, or they can park off-street, which they also have to pay for. But in well in cities with well-managed on-street parking, the off-street parking options, often you'll, you'll be able to find some cheaper off-street parking options. That's especially relevant if you're a commuter, for example. If, if you're just visiting an area and you're only parking for two hours, you don't mind paying maybe quite a significant price for parking you know but if you're parking there as a commuter parking all day every day uh, you don't want to pay 40 rupees per hour for parking right because that's going to add up to quite a big chunk of your salary for the month um, you'd, you'd prefer a much cheaper rate may 
even if it's a little less convenient, you're willing to perhaps park around the corner or slightly further away in order to get that slightly cheaper parking. So Paul, taking a slight detour and speaking to your personal role in academia, as someone interested in urban transportation, and definitely speaking to other people interested in urban transportation, parking might not be the first intuitive sort of field that people think about when it comes to tackling an issue within urban transportation. People look at how we can implement bicycle lanes, maybe efficient public transit systems. But I was wondering what personally got you interested in looking at parking with the reform and parking as an issue to tackle. Okay, yeah. So um, there, there's a guru of uh, parking reform by the name of uh, Donald Shoup, Professor Donald Shoup from UCLA. And he's been working on parking as an urban planning professor and an economist. He's been working on it for, for decades now. Uh, but he particularly had a bigger, big influence with his book uh, in 2005, which has the quite striking title of The High Cost of Free Parking. So it's a kind of mind-bending, paradoxical title there. So I, uh, I became interested in parking as a result of reading his stuff and also reading a few other people who were talking and writing about parking. One of them was a guy called Todd Littman, who's uh, from uh, Victoria in British Columbia in Canada. Uh, so he had quite an influence on me too. But why did I suddenly pay attention? Because, okay, so my background was in environmental studies and then I did a PhD in public policy essentially, but focused on cities and the connection between cities, transport and cities, land use patterns, their, their evolution, the shape of the cities, the built environment. So the connection between transport and the built environment. And the cities that I looked at were in Eastern Asia. So um, J Japanese cities, Korean cities, uh, Southeast Asian cities, especially. The, the team that I was working with was led by Jeff Kenworthy. Uh, and he, he'd been writing with his colleague, Peter Newman, for, for quite some time about the concept of car dependence. So f for your audience in India, one thing that perhaps when you, when you when some of your audience maybe have traveled, if you visited Australia or the United States, you probably were struck by how empty those places seem. There just don't seem to be many people around. Where are all the people? <laughs> this is supposed to be a city. Where where is everybody? Yeah. And that's that's no accident. Um, most Australian cities, most American, North American cities are very, very low density. So if we think of Bengaluru, the, the number of people per urban hectare is above 150, you know, approaching 200 people per urban hectare within the built, the, the, the land that is already built on or has some kind of urban land use. In, a, in American cities, typically it's about one-tenth of that something like 15 or 20 people per urban hectare. So these are very, very spread out cities. And why are they so spread out? Well, it's because they've had 50, 60, 70, 80 years of car dependent planning and trying very, very hard to accommodate cars with more parking and more road space and people moving further and further away from the city centers into suburbs where most people live in bungalows. And all of this effort to try to ease congestion, 
because if you have too many people, too many jobs in a small space, if if most people arrive there by car, you'll have terrible, terrible congestion. So if you want if you want to have 90% of your people moving around by car, you have no choice but to spread out in very, very low densities. And so those Western cities gradually did that over many, many decades. Now that they've done that over many, many decades, they're kind of stuck. It's very hard to, you can't reverse this easily. And so the team I was working with was concerned about this concept of car dependence. It's not something that's a problem yet in Indian cities because you're at a very early stage of this process. But if you continue to build roads and build parking and to mandate parking and to fail to manage on-street parking, then you're heading in that direction. So as part of my PhD work, my research for my PhD work, I was based in Malaysia for about five or six years, um, partly through the PhD and then afterwards as well. And, and I was a little dismayed. In fact, I was very dismayed to see that Malaysian policies and practices and trends were following <laughs> the same kinds of trends that we'd seen in Australia and the US. And there was the movement in those Western countries of regretting. Not, not everyone in those places regrets this. There's, there's a big clash between people who love cars and think suburban car yeah. dependent policies are fine. And those of us who think it was a big mistake and we should do something different and try to move away from it. But um, it was it was worrying to see the same trends appearing in Malaysia and Thailand and uh, to some extent even Indonesia and, and Philippines, although at an earlier stage. And I could see that parking was a big part of that story. Um, my PhD wasn't focused on parking at all, but fast forward another seven or eight years, and I read Donald Shoup and read Todd Lippmann and realized for the first time that parking uh, was a really important fundamental part of that story. Up until that time, parking, I, I knew parking was a problem. I knew parking was a part of the story, but I, I couldn't see any hope for making any difference about it. It seemed like one of those things that just was inevitable and it, there was just really no 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 choices no easy choices, uh, but I was inspired by by those guys to to see that maybe we can do a lot about it and make a big difference with parking as perhaps a lever. Or the, one way I like to think of it is that car dependence is this really big kind of ocean liner with a huge momentum in the wrong direction. And uh, places like Australia and the US have been in this ocean liner for a long time. And so they're very, very far off into the ocean of car dependence. Places like, like Indian cities are embarking in that direction slowly. And there are people at the rudder fighting with each other. Some of them saying, no, no, let's build more metros and improve the buses and manage the parking. And others are pulling at the rudder and saying, no, 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 let's build expressways and freeways and um, don't put bus lanes in. Don't um, don't manage the parking. Build more parking for me. I need more parking. Um, spread the cities out to avoid congestion. Don't allow concentrations of jobs and buildings in in the cities because that's just going to cause congestion. So the, these people struggling over the rudder, some of them are wanting to steer that ship in the direction of car dependence. They don't probably see it that way. If you ask them, that's not what their vision is. They're just trying to accommodate the traffic and the cars. You know, they have a short term vision. The thing is, if you spend year after year, decade after decade of accommodating traffic and building parking, keeping it cheap, building roads, keeping the roads cheap, uh, 
you'll be in that ocean of car dependence before too long. Uh, so it's it's hard to imagine that Indian cities could become car dependent because they are so different from that right now, but it could happen. Many decades of change can send you in that direction. But what I see in China, big, you know, the big countries like China with set, you know, quite a number of enormous cities of more than 5 million people, increasingly India is a country of many cities of, you know, that are big, more than 5 million people. They're already big without much space, without much road space, without much parking space. And so like Japan, cities in China, cities in India are seeing already at quite an early stage in this process that uh, you just can't keep going on by trying to build more parking, trying to build more roads, expand the roads. It just isn't feasible in that kind of context. Smaller cities might keep trying for longer, but fortunately, the smaller cities, once the big cities change their policies, the smaller cities often uh, will copy the policies that they see in Bangalore, Delhi, Beijing. The most recent reinventing parking uh, episode was about Beijing. And uh, mm. ten, ten, we talked about how 10 years ago, the parking situation in Beijing was, uh, this might be hard to believe, but worse than Indian cities. Um, the, the streets were just clogged with parking, parked cars and parked motorcycles just everywhere. So in, in just over 10 years or so, uh, the big cities, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Beijing, have uh, really got a grip on their parking situation and improved things a lot. And so there's some good examples to follow. And we can see signs in India of a really good debate about parking. So lots of people saying the right things about parking and um, lots of argument and debate. But, you know, <laughs> people are fighting about it and it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. Uh, but I'm hopeful that, that Indian cities will see the parking reform light uh, soon <laughs> and more and more of them will experiment with parking reform and demonstrate to the other Indian cities that, look, it works you too can achieve these benefits. So some reforms are coming, like you said, <clears throat> but they are few and far between, and they're still struggling to cater to this vocal audience that you said that are car users, which is assigned to prosperity and the stuff that we are growing economy now, we need to cater to a lot of motor vehicles. But the reality are they are dealing with is what you said, which is the cities are large, the population is huge, and there is no way you can accommodate all of them. So it is inevitable that parking needs to be rationed, the word that you used initially, and managed and the true cost levied. So it's not going to be zero cars. There are going to be cars that are going to be plying, like you said in one of your podcasts. Uh, it, it's not a true disincentive that you uh, you levy as a parking, right? I mean, the, 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 whether it is congestion charging or parking or anything, people who can afford to pay are anyway going to pay and come in, why don't you charge them and use that money to do something better? Yeah. The pushback is all coming from the disenfranchised or the public transport user or the people who cannot afford to keep on paying these things. So there is going to be pushback. And the alternates are still not coming in fast enough. The bus services are still needed to be coming up. Uh, you know, the services need to be better. Considering that what kind of role does civil society movements play in on the one hand, <clears throat> calling out parking reforms, what it may be, and on the other hand, trying to push uh, 
sustainable transport modes like public transport and other things what role do you see for civil society and how do you think that will what kind of yeah. examples have you seen around the world that you can hold for us just briefly perhaps i'll touch on a negative <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but we'll quickly switch to the positive but unfortunately all over the world but um i see this especially in india recently uh, some of civil society is actually pulling at that rudder in the direction of car dependence. <laughs> so we see some, mm. we see some uh, consumer advocacy organizations or, or organizations that have uh, perhaps they've, with good intentions, championed the cause of um, consumers against predatory business practices. And some of those have made the mistake of noticing that parking pricing is appearing in, uh, say, shopping malls and noticing that the on-street parking fee collection system and the fee collection systems of some government-owned parking has been privatised in a dysfunctional way to contractors who sometimes get called the parking mafia, right? And they, some of them behave badly. And so the, the the sort of indignation that parking should fees should be levied. Um, so the, the, these nonprofit organisations sometimes champion free parking and uh, opposition to parking fees out of perhaps good intentions and because they have had some success in other arenas where they were um, they found some predatory practice by bad you know businesses that were doing something wrong. Unfortunately, when you apply that to parking, it's uh, it, it's a it's a rather mistaken um, focus. But by all means, the the parking fee system should be made much more efficient. We should uh, get rid of the predatory kind of parking mafia organisations, and there should be proper um, proper pricing that's uh, highly regular, highly um, regulated, and well managed so that the, the funds go to the right place and not into the pockets of the wrong people. So that much is true. But being being just against parking fees is 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 a really poor use of precious um, civic advocacy effort, which could be focused on far better things. So having said that, um, yeah, uh, parking is not one of those things that tends to get people excited in and of itself. Although one thing that Donald Shoup did do, which is a little surprising, is he made this wonky, uh, detailed, strange uh, policy arena interesting enough that there did emerge uh, in the late that decade, late in that decade, around 2008 or so, a group of people who call themselves the Shoupistas. And so if, if you search online for Shoupistas, it's like a, an analogy with um, Sundanistas and other words like that, right? It's the Spanish ending there. Shoup, S-H-O-U-P, Easters, I-E-S-T-A-S. These are people who champion the parking policies that Donald Shoup champions. <laughs> so there are there is a small group of people who really, really are excited about parking reform, but most successful parking reforms in cities that have done the kind of parking reform 
that I advocate, places like uh, Auckland in New Zealand or New Zealand as a whole, or Portland in Oregon or Mexico City, uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, and um, you know, many, many others, uh, some European cities over the years, they have done it as part of a, a wider package of uh, reforms. So that there was a champ championing, championing housing reforms, for example. Sometimes parking is bundled in with with housing reform or part of that agenda, at least. Uh, wider sustainable transport reform so that, that appeal to people. So, for example, in, in Bogota, in Colombia, uh, is famous for urban mobility forms and public, public transport improvements in around the year 2000 and a few years after that. Part of those changes uh, included some parking changes. Nine out of ten of them very good, and one one or so one out of ten of them not so good. But you know, generally speaking, it was it was good parking reforms. So that's usually the story: is um, people like me, who are deeply into parking, helping people like you, who are interested in a wide diversity of um, issues, but which touch on parking. So you know, affordable housing, affordable public transport for for people and uh, plentiful public transport for people, uh, avoiding having buses getting stuck in in traffic, uh, making sure that cycling and walking is safe in the streets. There are people who care about all of those issues deeply and have made that their number one thing. Now, I care about all those issues as well. That's partly what motivates me with parking, but I've chosen to sort of zero in on parking as my focus in order to make a difference on all of those other things. And so my mission, and there's a there's a new organization in the US called the Parking Reform Network that I'm part of, mm -hmm. and my podcast, the Reinventing Parking podcast, is now the podcast for that network, Parking Reform Network. And we're, we're hoping to become an international network, in fact, and we, we'd love to have um, members or, or correspondents in India who are part of the network and can help information to flow both ways. You know, what's happening in India, the, the rest of the world can be inspired if an Indian city or town does some good things on parking, everyone else can learn from that. And similarly, uh, nonprofits and other you know, activists and advocates on various policies, when they need to deal with parking, it can be very confusing, right? It's, um, it's, it's, it's a bit technical sometimes and just confusing because the mindsets, the obvious thing to do is not always the right thing to do. We, we in the Parking Reform Network and other, other parking reformers can help you to get your head around what, what would parking look like as part of an agenda that will help your cause. Mm. And, and so the, the, good, the good news is that um, the kind of, this kind of list of key parking reforms um, that we advocate, uh, you know, pricing the on-street parking properly, managing it well, enforcing the on-street parking well, uh, designing the streets well, maybe to include parking as appropriate or maybe not, depending on the street, uh, and refraining from promoting off-street parking, refraining from requiring it, refraining from subsidizing it. Those are the sort of essentials of this parking reform agenda. Those help a long list of other agendas as well. And so we can see that happening. But the parking reform itself then benefits as well because it piggybacks on those perhaps more popular and more widely understandable agendas um, so that we can get parking reform. So it's, it's a synergy. That's very interesting. So there are a lot of lessons to learn from. The Japanese examples really strike a card because we are built similar and the pathway could be 
mimicking some of those. Obviously, it can't be the Australia and the US model. That ship has sailed too far, like you said. And we are having to pull the handbrakes on this one and see how we can go forward. And uh, parting thoughts on what you think the decision makers in India should be doing regarding how should they be seeing? I mean, you've if you had to summarize for them, do this, this, this. Uh, follow this, do this or do that. You know, it would be useful because there are parking policies coming in and they are all leaning towards paid parking, but not necessarily going all the way. And they don't have to go all the way right up front. But what could be the sequence that you think they should go after? That that would okay. be nice to hear. So let me perhaps mention some, some Indian organizations and people who are pushing in the right mm-hmm. direction. Uh, so... Over the years, CSE, the Center for Science and Environment in Delhi, and uh, Anumita Rachaudhary has been a champion of parking reform. Uh, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Shreya Gadapelli, who I think you interviewed, yeah. is, a, is, a, yes. is a longstanding champion and her group, Urban Works. Uh, her former organization, ITTB India, is still working on parking reform. And these are all excellent resources and people that you can turn to to, to learn more about parking reform within India. One of the things that Shreya says is perhaps the first thing is to change our mindset about parking. So you remember I said that that harmful mindset that emerges early on is a privileged mindset that I deserve parking and it should be cheap and free. It's like a public good that just should be there for me. A much better mindset about parking would be to say parking is real estate. It's like hotel rooms, meeting rooms, right? We don't need the government to require these things. We don't need the government to subsidize these things. If there's a demand for them, private sector would generally speaking build them. The government needs to make sure that we don't have market failures and certain problems, exploitation, but that's about it. But because there's this interaction with the off-street parking, which is real estate, and the on-street parking, which is not quite real estate, right? It's part of the public realm. It's a public service, but not a public good different things. (laughs) So, but government has responsibility for the on-street parking. And one difficulty for government is it's vulnerable to voices saying, don't charge too much, right? Government, Mm. you know, is in charge of water. Don't charge too much for water. Electricity, don't you charge too much? All of the things that government is in charge of, it's very difficult to charge a full cost price for any of those things. And parking is no exception. But one thing that government can do with the on-street parking is, again, a mindset. Instead of treating it as just a free public good, treat it as a common property resource. So this is like a, a technical term, but the classic example of a common property resource is a river, okay? A river with fish and, and the, the, the water itself needs to be clean, right? So if you have factories along that river and people fishing and extracting that, that river water for irrigation, Um, It's all too easy if we don't ration those activities for that river to be used and abused and end up in terrible, terrible condition, which is not good for anybody, right? In the end, nobody is happy with that situation. The same with parking in the streets. So parking in streets, to the extent that we allow it, that parking, we should mark it out and make sure it's only in the places that's allowed, but the allowed legal parking is a common property resource that will inevitably be overused in busy areas at least 
And in India, you have no shortage of busy areas, right? So just about everywhere is a busy area. So parking will almost inevitably be overused on an Indian street with motorcycles, lorries, small trucks, small lorries, big lorries, uh, cars, all of them, you know, a whole menagerie of vehicles will be occupying that parking. So just like a river, you need to ration that use. And with rivers, the rationing takes many forms, right? It, often it's rules, regulations. It's complicated, right? Pricing is only one of the part of the toolbox. Uh, mm. But there will always be enforcement. No matter what kind, of re, uh, what kind of rationing you do, you will always need to have enforcement to back it up. But when it comes to parking, it turns out that fees are the number one effective, efficient, tried and tested, hundreds of cities all over the world. It works. We know it works. <laughs> and it's almost like magic. A few years ago, I came up with a, a, a hands-on user experience game using cards on, 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 um, on, a, on a sort of a, a pretend little piece of a, of a city with squares that represent parking spaces and buildings and things. And so both ITDP India and UrbanWorks have adapted that game for, for the Indian case and they've improved it and made it much more fun. Um, and that game illustrates the power of on-street parking fees to magically almost, because when people play this game, they don't expect it to work quite so well. Um, it gives people an incentive to use the off-street parking and to find the off-street parking. Okay, so it really, really does work, rationing on-street parking. It really, really does work. And so, um, you know, where was I? <laughs> uh, mindsets, right? So what, what mm -hmm. Indian authorities need to do, off-street parking is real estate. On-street parking is a common property resource like rivers. But unlike rivers, the number one tool for rationing is fees together with enforcement, effective enforcement. There is a problem that the traffic police are the ones responsible for enforcement. And yeah. not, not to be critical of them, they're doing the best they can, but they've got bigger things on their agenda, right? They've got bigger problems. If you have chaotic parking in a relatively minor street, the traffic police will go and look at that and say, well, it's not really causing a traffic jam. My, my priority is making sure the traffic flows on the big roads. So I don't care about this problem. But cities should care about chaotic parking, even on the minor streets, not just the major streets. And so we need cities probably need to negotiate with the, the police to delegate some of their power for parking enforcement to parking wardens who will see it as their number one priority to enforce the parking rules, even on the minor streets where it's not causing a traffic problem because it's still causing other problems. You're, you're then failing to give the motorists that incentive that they need to look for off-street priced parking that is what we want them to use mostly, right? We, we can have some on-street yeah. parking. So the mindset is the number one thing. Mm. The policies themselves follow from that mindset, but it's a two-way street. So what, what we see around the world is that once cities start to do the bright policies of pricing the on-street parking and refraining from promoting the off-street parking, the mindsets also change. So um, we can do a bit of both, right? Don't wait for the mindsets to change before we do something. But as we do something, constantly hammer home, we're doing this because we have a different mindset about parking. And it's better for the motorists too, right? The motorists are not happy with the current situation in Indian 
big yeah. cities, something needs to improve. And they, they need to face up to the fact that just building more and more parking and keeping it cheap is not going to help. It's not going to solve their problem. We know this from all over the world. The only places where that approach has worked is very rich countries where they were rich enough and small cities where they were rich enough to spread out, spread out, spread out. But then they have a different problem, right? Detroit doesn't have a parking problem. It's got a parking glut and it's got a car dependence problem and it's got a terrible, terrible public transport system. Careful what you wish for. If you wish for plentiful parking and free free flowing roads, after 30 or 40 years, you might have that, but you're going to have a far worse problem like some of those American cities. So <laughs> careful what you wish. That's for. a tough sell for you, you. We have to be able to visualize that and show people how it's going to look. And like you said, the mindset is the biggest thing today. Everybody needs to be told one simple truth. Parking needs to be rationed and it's no longer going to be free. It may have been earlier, but get used to it. <clears throat> you can't have the loss aversion syndrome anymore that, oh my God, I'm losing some things. Yeah. So that reminds me, packaging it with a, with some attractive things, right? Because people do care about the streets, the safety of the streets for their children, for their elderly relatives, for themselves. Um, and they care about their residential environment. They care about being able to move around with, with other options. They, they care about the traffic jams that they're sitting in, right? They don't want them. The answer isn't more and more roads, more and more parking. There's a different answer, but uh, just telling them that you need to pay for parking as the solution won't be persuasive. It needs to be part of a package which really does improve public transport, really does provide safe lanes for for um, vulnerable two-wheelers, yes. for example, etc. Those things all need to be part of a package. And um, they can come together very nicely, but it takes some clever leadership to, to uh, bring people along. By the way, I, I guess I should perhaps mention, you, you mentioned the worry that pricing the on-street parking would be a burden to, to some um, sections. certain sections of society. So yeah. just let me make two points about that. One of them is that in today's India, if, if we think of parking as kind of like rent for a, a certain number of square meters, an, an off-street parking space for a car, roughly speaking, 25 to 30 square meters, once you take account of the, mm. the uh, aisles and the ramps and all of that, on-street parking, about half of that because you don't need the aisles and the ramps. For a two-wheeler, a motorized two-wheeler, off-street is much, much less than one-tenth of the space for the for the cars because the aisles can be narrow. If you have a dedicated parking facility only for two-wheelers, you can have incredibly narrow aisles and narrow ramps and you don't need much space and the, and the motorcycles can pack in quite tightly. Uh, similarly on street, they pack in maybe six to, to one car. What's the traditional price for parking a two-wheeler? It's just half the price of a four-wheeler, right? So... If you calculate that as a, a fee per square meter, who is paying? Who is overpaying? It's the two-wheeler two users. So they are they are subsidizing their richer four-wheeler users currently, right now. So as part of parking reform and having proper pricing, uh, don't raise the two-wheeler prices. They may already be about right. Sometimes they might even be too high. But the four-wheeler prices probably need to rise in the busy places. 
And, that, and that's the second point. So I said I would make two points. So the second point is you only raise the prices where you need to, to make the difference that you want to make, right? The difference we want to make is to make sure the on-street parking is not totally clogged up and chaotic. And currently with that chaotic situation, people have an incentive to find illegal on-street parking on footpaths and, mm. you know, blocking things and wherever they can find it, right? And they know the enforcement is weak, so they just do it. We want them to have the incentive to do the right thing, but we don't need to overdo it, right? There's no point pricing on-street parking so pricey that there's no cars in the street at all. If there's space for parking, we can have parking. That's fine. If it's if the road design is such that there's enough space for parking and it's still safe and you can still have you know, traffic and buses and et cetera, then by all means have parking. But ration it. But that doesn't mean completely getting rid of it. You get the right price so that you have parking, but not full parking, because it's when it gets full, that's when people do the bad behavior, right? So that suggests that the parking prices should be trial and error parking prices. Mm. So one of the things Donald Shoup has been championing is this trial and error approach to parking prices. So that would be a, a something for cities in India to think about, because I know that the cities in India that have been most progressive and thinking about doing the right thing with parking, Chennai, Bangalore, Bengaluru, um, Pune, and a few others, Ahmedabad, uh, they've been struggling with this question, what's the right price? Well, there is no answer to that. It's a trial and error thing. You wait and see. You, you should sort of make a guess, one price for cars, and then maybe one-tenth of that price for motorcycles. And then you just wait and see what happens. If the parking is still full, then you'll need to raise the price a bit more. And if it's still full, raise it a bit more until you get a few vacancies. You might find that you need a morning price, a midday price, and an afternoon price, or an evening price. You might need four prices, maybe even a Saturday price. You might need different prices um, at different times because the parking might be totally empty in the morning, but it's really chock-a-block full in the late afternoon the price should be higher in the late afternoon because you need, and that will give some incentive to some people to change when they park, not just where they park. The power of these fees is, is almost yeah. magical. But the other thing about these trial and error prices is the fear that, that shopkeepers have that you will price too much and you will scare away their customers. They don't need to worry if it's trial and error prices because we're never going to price so high that the customers can't come. In fact, if we get the price right, You'll, they'll have more customers because you'll have turnover in the parking. Any new customer can always find a new sp a spot that's empty. Trial and error is the best way to set parking prices. And private sector owners of off-street parking, that's how they do it. They don't mm. talk about it, but that's how they do it. And many cities do this actually, but without talking about it. And there's a certain number of cities that do this very explicitly and they talk about it. Places like Seattle, San Francisco, Calgary in, in um Canada and there's a there's a list of others. Uh, you know, uh, Auckland in New Zealand is another one. There's a, there's a bunch of them, but many many more do this quietly without really talking about it. The, they, they review the price every few for it so often. And if you look around in a European city, very often you'll see pricing zones, expensive parking in the busiest mm. parts of the city, much much cheaper in less busy parts. They are quietly doing a similar thing, but without much. Fast. I think so. Now with a lot of technology and search pricing, you can even make that more dynamic uh, and discover the price based on the load and uh, things like that. There was also the conundrum of most planners thinking today that the two-wheeler is stealing the public transport user away because the cost of end-to-end -end trip on a two-wheeler is lower than a public transport and public transport is never able to manage 
to match those prices and we are clogged with uh, a lot of two wheelers or two certainly two wheelers are becoming an enemy of public transport not how the viewers uh, not how the users might see it uh, for us it is convenience and it's it's a nicer smaller footprint way of going along uh, like you said one fifth of a car space uh, because we use smaller cars especially uh, if they're electric yeah especially if they're yeah <laughs> but yeah, the car space yeah. is still the car space it's just still Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah. No, what I mean is the, the electric two-wheelers are a huge opportunity for India. I think so. Electric anything is a two opportunity, but in terms of space, uh, it's one-fifth of an EV car or a petrol yeah. car. So It's very tempting to have this ultra-dynamic pricing, but that, that's probably a mistake because mm. uh, w- one thing that upsets motorists is uh, getting a shock of how much they're going to pay when, when, when they arrive, if not being able to predict, right? <laughs> People like right. to have predictable prices. So it's, it's probably better to have a yearly review of the prices or maybe once in three months. Uh, some cities that are, or some towns that are tourist towns need to have a, a, a peak season price and an off season price, right? The parking is full mm-hmm. for three months of the year and mostly empty the rest of the year. So they would have two prices. Yeah. The last thing you want to know is have a drink and come back and see a big bill on your parking and not on your drink bill. Yes. yes <laughs> you right, didn't yeah. know that before you went in <laughs> yes. or that you came all the way and then figured out, oh shit, it's too full already. And the price just went up. Uh, yes. And you got to go all the way back. <laughs> That's right. So, dead miles, I, should, I would say. So you're right. So I think there are, pros and cons of a lot of these things that we feel is convenient, but it's not. But thank you very much, uh, Paul, for coming on the show and demystifying this whole thing, telling us about your journey and why parking is so important. Uh, I'm going to have a couple of more conversations uh, with people around this and see how it's going to lead to better utilization of road space and help clean it up for safer cities, for more public transport, for more cyclists and walkers to be able to conveniently use this and still for people to start understanding that you just cannot, there are consequences for usage of your motor vehicles and you have to, I mean, it's time you got to pay for these things. It's not always a free ride. These are not the public goods you think they are. Thank you very much, Paul, for your time. I take this opportunity to uh, call on viewers to subscribe to Uru Labs and go check out Reinventing Parking. I'll put the links on the show notes. Uh, Paul Bata has been running it for many years now. His blogs are a source of great information. Do check it out and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.